It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. It's now time for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. From amazing stories to colorful personalities, join us as we go in-depth with the men and women that make up the Oakland Athletics Organization. It all starts right now. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered. I'm Chris Townsend. I hope you're enjoying your off-season. We've got some uh, interviews we want to play for you today. Some really big names in the history of baseball. Two were Hall of Famers. One was a perennial all-star, and the other, well, he's our Astros insider, and he's just one of our favorites, the former Cal Bear. We're going to have Hall of Famer Tom Glavin, Hall of Famer Burt Blylevin, the legend Steve Garvey, and Jeff Blum with the Houston Astros, and a World Series MVP back in 2005 with the Chicago White Sox. Tom Glavin, the name speaks for itself. 305 wins to 203 losses, a lifetime 3.54 ERA. He's a World Series champion in 1995, two-time National League Cy Young Award winner, 10-time All-Star, four-time Silver Slug Award winner because the guy could rake and he got drafted in hockey, which we will talk about, and five times he led the National League in wins. He got 91.9% of the ballot. Yes, a first ballot Hall of Famer inducted in 2014. We talk about the Braves. We talk about pitching. We talk about Maddox, Smoltz, and him, the big three, and we talk about his hockey career. Here is the great, the Hall of Famer, Tom Glavin. Well, the Braves are still in the playoffs. They're taking on the St. Louis Cardinals, and now joining us is truly one of the greats of all time. He's a Hall of Famer, a 10-time All-Star, a two-time Cy Young Award winner. He also led the league and wins five times a World Series champion and, let's not forget, was a terrific hockey player drafted by the Los Angeles Kings. The great Tom Glavin is with us here on A's Cast Live. Tom, how have you been? Uh, I'm doing great, thanks. How you doing? We're, we're doing well, and let's just talk about the rebirth of baseball going on right now in Atlanta. You open up another new ballpark, and the team in the playoffs right now against the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot going on. Uh, you know, certainly uh, the new ballpark um, has added a lot of excitement, and, uh, you know, I think certainly the team on the field has, has been a ton of fun to watch, um, you know, defending – National League East Division champions now this year, which I think was probably uh, maybe a year ahead of time. I, I think last year's uh, division win was probably a little bit of a surprise. I think uh, most of us felt like the team was going to be real competitive last year. But, um, you know, they surprised everybody and won the division and, and turned around and backed it up this year. So there's a really good vibe uh, around that club right now. And, and with the new ballpark and everything that's going on around it, um, you know, it's fun to be a part of it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, very reminiscent of what was going on uh, with the ball club in the early 90s when I was a part of it, and, and we kind of started that run of uh, consecutive division titles. So there's uh, there's a definite air of excitement around them. They've got a lot of young players that are fun to watch and uh, guys that people can identify with. So uh, it's all around good times right now in Atlanta. Yeah, you guys talk about your run. Your guys' run was – it was crazy. You're not supposed to win every single year. No sport is set up like that to where you win your division every single year. Like, like we're looking at the Dodgers right now, and you go, wow, the Dodgers have won it seven years in a row. You go, that's nothing compared to what you guys did. What was that like to where every year you're winning the division? Every year you know you're going for the World Series. You know, it's one of those things that I think um, when you're when you're going through it, you, you probably don't pay attention to it the way you should. Um, I think maybe you, you, you just kind of get in. You go into it every year, 
you know you have a good team, you want to defend your title, you want to win your division, you want to get in the playoffs and have a chance at the World Series. So, I mean, that's kind of your mindset. And, and I don't think really until it's either over or you're done playing to where you really get a chance to step back and, and evaluate it and realize how unbelievable it was. Now, given that, I don't, I don't say that when you're doing it, you don't appreciate it because we did. I mean, I think we all appreciated how special what we were doing year in and year out was, but I don't think you have, really have the opportunity to truly appreciate it. If that makes sense, you can, you know, you can enjoy it and, 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 and what have you, but it's hard to really appreciate exactly what you're doing until you're no longer in, in the middle of it. And, and I think that's what we were. We knew that we knew we had good teams every year. We knew we were going to have competition every year. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we took it for granted because we knew that, you know, you're an injury away from a lot of things changing. Uh, the beauty of baseball, there's always a team that comes out of nowhere every year. So you're always guarded against that. So, I mean, I think we, uh, we, we expected to win every year, but we didn't take it for granted that we were going to win every year. And, and, you know, just kind of went about our business of, of each and every year trying to put, you know, put that best effort forward and, and try and create an opportunity for ourselves to win our division and get into a postseason. You know, I think about this team now, and as you said, very similar as you guys were in the World Series in 91, and you got a, you got young players and you got guys in their prime and you got veteran players. Talk about how you see the similarities of how the roster is built between your guys' team in the early 90s and what you have now in Atlanta. Oh, there are a lot of similarities. I think, uh, you know, when you look around the roster, uh, it's very similar to where we were in 91 and 92. They've got a lot of talented young players um, and, and a nice mix of veteran guys to go along with it. So, you know, you look at our team in, in 1991, uh, you know, we were a surprise team. We, we thought we were going to be competitive that year, which, to be honest with you, was really not all that lofty of an expectation because we were so uncompetitive for the years leading up to that, uh, that, you know, for us to go into the 91 season feeling like, we had a chance to be a 500 club or better. Um, you know, that was, on the one hand, I guess maybe not so lofty an expectation, but when you're coming off of, you know, 100 lost seasons, it would have been quite a jump for us. It just so happened that our acceleration, I think much like the Braves' acceleration last year, was probably a year or two ahead of schedule, and everything came into place. But, you know, you look at the similarities. We had a very young, talented pitching staff. I think the Braves are the same way with, with Fulton Avich, Max Reed and Mike Soroka all being young guys that are kind of uh, making their mark right now, still trying to figure out who they are, but obviously have a ton of talent. Uh, the everyday lineup has young guys like Albies and Swanson and, and Ronald Acuna. We had guys like Justice and, uh, you know, Ronnie Gant and guys like that. And then, you know, they have the nice mix of, of Freddie Freeman and Marcakis and McCann and, you know, a couple of the guys in the back end of the bullpen and similar to what we had with Pendleton and Sid Bream and, uh, and, you know, Rafael Belliard say. So it's that good mix. I think it's that mix that provides an opportunity to have some long-term success with this group. It's not the kind of thing where, uh, you know, they're they're all going to get old together or anything like that. I think there's a nice mix of, like you say, the young guys, kind of the middle-of-the-road guys, and then the veteran guys. And, and I think it's a formula that certainly worked well for us through the 90s and, and another – a formula that I think they're trying to duplicate duplicate here, excuse me, with this team currently. You know, we had your former teammate John Smoltz on, and we are talking to Smoltzy about your guys' run, and I asked him this question. I want to ask you the same question about, you guys acquire Greg Maddox. And now, you know, because I think about Verlander, I think about Cole, I think about Grinky, I think about you three. You guys were so dominant. You played golf together. You were friends but you competed against each other and you pushed each other. What was it like when you added Greg, and how did that elevate all your games? Well, you know, I think it was a, it was a case where, you know, you look at it and you go, you know, we've, we've already got a pretty good um, starting rotation, and it's hard to imagine it getting significantly better, but then when you add a guy like Greg, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, we just went from being – pretty good or really good to unbelievably good potentially so you know anytime you add a guy like that it obviously you know it it makes your ball club better but I think the beauty of the three of us together for as long as we were you, you, you hit the nail on the head we drove each other we motivated each other I mean it was the kind of thing that 
we understood that in order for our team to achieve the expectations that everybody had, we had to uphold our end of the bargain. And that meant we had to go out there each individually and, and achieve certain things. And uh, none of us wanted to be the guy that was having a bad year uh, that caused, you know, the, the thing to get off the rails in any way, shape or form. So there was a lot of competition in that regard. We wanted to be, we wanted to uphold our end of the bargain. We didn't want to be the weak, weak link in the chain, so to speak. And, you know, because of that, we all worked extremely hard at what we were doing. And, and I think it was the kind of thing that, you know, we had friendly competitions with our batting and bunting and fielding and all those things, which, you know, uh, were fun and were designed for us to work hard at it and try and be better than each other. But when it came to pitching, there was, you know, there wasn't a competition in terms of, Hey, I want to, I want to be better than him. And I want to have more attention than him or anything like that. It was, it was really a case where, you know, if I followed Greg on a, you know, on a given turn in the rotation and he went out and threw a, you know, a four hit shout out, I wanted to throw a three hit shout out. And then Smolty wanted to come behind me and do one better. So I think that was the kind of thing that we had, the kind of thing that drove us. Um, you know, I think it was uh, the kind of thing too, that, it was always nice knowing that if you, if you had a bad game, you had one of those guys coming behind you uh, to kind of get things back on track a little bit. And, and for me personally, I, I always say this, and I, and I think the other guys will agree with me, but I don't certainly want to speak for them or put words in their mouth. You know, it, it's always difficult being a number one in a rotation because there are a ton of expectations on you uh, when you're the number one guy. But with our setup the way it was, any one of us could have been the number one at any given time and, and, you know, any given year, you know, any one of us was the opening day starter. I felt like it took a ton of pressure off of me knowing that those two guys were with me in the rotation and were behind me because, like I said, if you had a bad game, you knew those guys, one of those guys was coming behind you and going to get things back on track. And I think that helped to alleviate some of that sense of, oh, my God, I'm the number one guy. Every time I go out here, we better win because if I don't, who knows when we're going to win again. We didn't have that. So I think that enabled the, all of us to relax a little bit and, and just kind of be a little bit more free in terms of, you know, how we approached our starts. And, and I think, like I said, at least for me, I think it, that made me better. And, and being around those guys every day made me better watching them and having them as another set of eyes watching me if there was something that I was struggling with and trying to fix. You know, covering the Braves right now, I, I bet this is not easy for any of you guys. When you talk about Acuna Jr. and, you know, the lack of hustle, being benched, now we got a throat slash. If you could sit down with him and you could give him advice, he's a young player, he's so dynamic, he's so good, what advice would you give to him? Well, it's interesting because after, you know, game one of the series where you know, he didn't run out the ball that he thought was going to be a home run and ended up getting a single instead of an extra base hit and then compounds it with another base running mistake and gets doubled off on a line drive. You know, I, I do a radio show here in Atlanta every Friday morning, and obviously that was that was the topic of conversation. And, and my point in that interview was the fact that we're having this conversation should be enough for Ronald to realize that he needs to stop doing this stuff because he is a tremendous baseball player. And the conversation surrounding him should be about his skills on the baseball field. It shouldn't be about all this other stuff. So I think for him, he needs to understand that. He needs to come to that understanding that, hey, I need the conversation about me to be about what I'm doing on the baseball field and how well I'm doing, not this speculation about am I playing hard, am I not playing hard, or all this other stuff. So, you know, it's just for me, it's unnecessary noise, and I would tell him that. I would tell him, listen, Go out there, you play the game, and let your production on the field be the topic of conversation, not whether or not you are hustling on the baseball field. That There's just no reason for that, you know? So I hope he comes to, to the realization that it's unnecessary noise. I mean, you know, when, when Brian Snicker pulled him out of a game uh, in August or what have you, you know, a lot of people are under the impression, well, that's the first time that happened and, and Brian pulled him out of the game. Hopefully it won't happen again. The problem is it wasn't the first time. It was just the, the almost the last straw, so to speak, that, that Brian felt like he had to do something more than have a conversation with him. And I think that the reaction you saw from his teammates after that game one, uh, where they all had to answer those questions and they were, you know, they were for them, they're a very tight group and they're very close, close-lipped about, 
what they say about that each other within that group for them all to him for to a man to pretty much criticize Ronald for his lack of hustle in that game. I think that says a lot. And that's the kind of stuff that he needs to come to realize. Hopefully he will. He is young, but at some point in time, being young is no longer an excuse and you've got to own up to things. So hopefully that's going to happen sooner than later because he is a tremendous player. Let's end on this. A lot of people, obviously you're one of the great baseball players of all time, but a lot of people don't know you were drafted ahead of Hockey Hall of Famers. You were drafted ahead of Brett Hall, ahead of Luke Robitaille in the 1984 draft of the L.A. Kings. How good of a hockey player were you? Uh, I was pretty good. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not going to toot my own horn too much, but trust me, anytime I see either one of those guys, I remind them that I was drafted ahead of them, and they don't like that too much. But, um, but you know, I'll say this. People have asked me this all the time. I was a I was probably a better hockey player coming out of high school than I was a baseball player. I was much more polished. Uh, as a pitcher, I was very raw. I didn't know what I was doing. I got on the mound, and I threw the ball, and I threw it as hard as I could, and I had a good arm, and that's why I got drafted. Uh, as a hockey player, I was more polished. Uh, I had a lot more going on uh, in terms of the whole scope of my game than I did at baseball. I, like I said, I was just a, I was a thrower with a good arm that turned into a pitcher, but I, I think I made the right decision. Well, I'll tell you this, because of TBS and when I was growing up, we've got we got to watch you guys. It, it, it's amazing that that Superstation allowed us to experience Atlanta Braves baseball and all your winning. I mean, there's there's been other great teams, but the exposure you guys had, it's, it, you feel like you know you guys because we got to watch all of your starts on TBS. It was amazing. Yeah, and that was a neat dynamic for us, you know, and, and, you know, I think the Dallas Cowboys will always forever be America's team, uh, but we were right there for a while. I mean, you know, like you said, we were on TV every night across the country, and I think sometimes you lose sight of, of the scope of how many people get to watch you, but when we would go on the road, some of the crowds that we would have on the road uh, were just unbelievable, and, and it was in large part because those people got to watch us every night. They, they saw us. Even though we weren't in Atlanta, they watched us every night on TV. And, and, you know, I still have a lot of people that will come up to me even today and say, man, I grew up watching you guys, and PBS was great, and we got to see you guys all the time. And, you know, that's neat. You forget sometimes, the, like I say, the, the scope of, of exposure that you have with people. But uh, that was a neat time and a, and a unique time uh, in the broadcast world where, you know, we were one of the few teams that were on every night. And, and people across the country really got to know you. It was pretty cool. Yeah, you could be watching Gilligan's Island or the Brady Bunch, and all of a sudden it's Braves baseball. It was hilarious. Tom, <laughs> hey, thank you. Exactly. Thank you so much for the time. It's an absolute honor to have you on the program. Continued success, and we'd love to have you on again. All right, I'd be happy to do it, and I thanks, for, thanks for the opportunity. Have a great day. Boy, I loved watching him when I was a kid, watching TBS. Those guys were big time. Also big time. Burt Blylevin won 287 games. He was a two-time World Series champion, a two-time All-Star. He was an American League strikeout leader in 1985, was voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame 79.7%. As we were getting ready for the Twins and the Yankees in the playoffs, here is the great Burt Blylevin. Well, join us once again as one of the greatest pitchers to have ever lived. He's a Hall of Famer. He does a great job broadcasting for the Minnesota Twins, arguably one of the greatest curveballs of all time. The great Burt Blylevin is with us before the Yankees in the Twins game. Burt, it's great to have you on the program again. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on. Thank you very much. You know, recently I was in Minnesota. I also work for the Raiders. I do the sidelines for the broadcast, and we came over to – I brought Brent Musburger over to uh, Target Field, and we, we roamed. I got to tell you, they did an unbelievable job with Target Field. What a beautiful place for baseball. Oh, they really did. And, you know, U.S. Bank is not, not – uh, uh, you know, that's a beautiful stadium too. So, yeah, the uh, five-state area, especially in Minnesota, they uh, love their sports. And uh, it's nice that uh, they're able to build a field like Target Field. And, uh, you know, also U.S. Bank and also Target Center where the uh, Wolves play. They do a great job there. 
Yeah, U.S. Bank, I thought what was so interesting is we've seen so many places that have become so big in sports that the fans just get further and further away from the field. But for the Vikings game, it's like they built they didn't build out and up. They just built straight up. So it feels like the Viking fans are right on top of the field. Isn't that cool, though? I mean, baseball's really done that with all the new ballparks, of course, Target Field, and that's why I'm so happy baseball is putting the netting all the way down that third baseline and first baseline because fans are so close to the game now compared to the stadiums that were, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, before we uh, before we get to tonight's action, Yankees and the Twins, we just had on Tom Glavin, Hall of Famer. You're a Hall of Famer. When, when you get to that level and you guys get together every single year in Cooperstown, what, what is it like to be a part of that fraternity? Well, it's pretty cool. You know, Tom Glavin was a great pitcher for the Braves. Of course, Greg Maddox joining him, John Smoltz, uh, you know, uh, Chipper Jones. But, you know, we pitchers, we don't talk to the hitters. We never did anyway. <laughs> we don't like hitters. So we pitchers kind of stick together, you know. We kind of hang out at the bar, and, you know, and if a hitter walks in, we, we turn our heads. What was that moment where you're either at the hotel or you're, you're at the museum where you just you saw somebody, something happened, you went, oh, my God, I'm a baseball Hall of Famer? Well, you know what? Uh, when I played with Cleveland, Bob Feller always came every spring to spring training, and he, I got to know him, and I think as a broadcaster and a retired player, I really enjoyed my time when I went to Cleveland and had lunch or dinner with Bob and just talked baseball. He actually wanted to talk more about the military, his days in the military, and uh, you know what he did so well for our country during World War II. But you know what? Uh, just to be able to say that you're a Hall of Famer, of course, is, is a great honor. And to rub shoulders with guys, you know, that uh, have been the greats of the past, it is a great honor. So what do the Twins need to do to get over this hump against the Yankees? Because they've really struggled against the Bombers. (laughs) Well, you know what? Twins are, of course, they're behind the eight ball right now. They have to win three in a row. You start with one tonight. It comes down to starting pitching, always does. Jake Odorizzi, you know, has averaged about five and a third innings uh, in his 32 starts this year. So he's got to go out and pitch five very good innings. I think as a former pitcher, I always looked, especially when I got older, if I could pitch three shutout innings at the beginning of the ball game, that's going to be important, I think, for Oder Rizzi tonight against the Yankee lineup. It's a powerful lineup. It's a good lineup. And it's a lineup that, uh, you know, you look at that and the Dodgers and Houston and some of these other ball clubs that are fighting to get to the World Series. You know, the Twins offensively put up great numbers this year, and the bats have to come alive and score hopefully seven or eight runs, and that's about the way you're going to beat the Yankees. You almost have to outslug them. Yeah, and I'm thinking about this year, Bert, and it's pretty amazing when you look at the 107 wins by the Astros, 103 wins by the Yankees, 101 wins by your Twins, and then here the A's, they win 97 games. You got the Twins win, I mean, the uh, Rays win 96. 97 wins only gets you into a wild card game. How crazy is that? <laughs> and that was quite a game between Oakland and, and the Rays, two organizations that have really relied on making trades and building within their minor league system. Of course, the Rays winning today, keeping uh, that series alive, but uh, it's a it's, there's some good organizations out there, and then there's some organizations like, I'm going to say Detroit, uh, you know, or Kansas City. They have to rebuild. They have to go back to hopefully these minor league players can come up through their system and produce. So, you know, the budgets are high on some ball clubs, but they're very low on other ones. When you have a game plan as a pitcher and you're going up against a team that has the kind of power that either the Twins or the Yankees have, you want, I mean, obviously the objective is keep the ball in the yard, and if you are going to give it up, you only want to give up a solo shot. As a pitcher, what would your game plan be against this Yankees lineup? Well, first of all, i got to get ahead in the count. I think what we've seen in the first two ball, club, ball games, I think they're 13, 14 walks by the, started by the past staff of the Twins. They have to 
be more aggressive in the strike zone. You can't be afraid to make a mistake. Uh, you have to get strike one. That That's simple. That, that's that been in baseball since it was founded. But, you know, when you're always 3-1, 2-1 on a very good hitting ball club like the Yankees, they're going to take advantage of it, and they have. So the big thing is get strike one. You have to show these guys that you will bust that fastball inside. Keep them honest. Don't get them leaning out over the plate. And I think that's what Odorizzi has to do tonight is establish that fastball both sides of the plate. But he's a pitcher that pitches up in the zone. He doesn't keep the ball down very well. So, you know, he's got to get that good 93, 94-mile-an-hour fastball with that little giddy-up uh, to hopefully get by some swinging bats for the Yankees. And also seems so easy, but it rings true, is when you score first and you really get the crowd into the game. Well, especially here in Minnesota. You know, uh, you know they're, they're diehards. They really are. We're, we're even the Yankee fans, they were awesome to listen to on the telecast that I watched. You know, the enthusiasm and, and the, the, the ego that they have. And Minnesota fans hopefully will come out and do the same thing. Root for your ball club. Hopefully good things happen. Yeah, and because you, you don't want to go out this early. You want to make it a series. And, you know, talk about Nelson Cruz, what, what he has meant at the age of 39. You want to have young, dynamic players. But as you know, to make runs, you got to have that steady veteran presence. Yeah, I mean, Nelson Cruz is a leader. He's been a leader ever since he came up with the Brewers way back when. And, you know, he went over to Texas, had some great years, had four solid years with the Seattle Mariners, became a free agent, and the Twins uh, offered him a contract. that really probably below market, but he took it, and he had a fantastic year again, over 400 major league home runs. The guy is a leader not only on the field but off the field. And it, the organization did well when they not only got Nelson Cruz, they got Jonathan Scope, they added Marwin Gonzalez uh, in spring training, and they got C.J. Crone. So, you know, it's a powerful hitting ball club. And, you know, Kepler, and, and they missed Byron Buxton, of course, out in center field. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Rosario, I think, uh, led the club in runs batted in. And then you got big Miguel Sano, you know, at third base. And Polanco had a great year at short. Uh, hopefully he'll be steady. And then Mitch Garver and uh, Jason Castro, the two catchers, have done a good job. So it's a good ball club. They hit two, I think, 276 as a team. Over 300 and, I think, what, 307 home runs, one more than the Yankees. So it's a good offensive ball club. But it comes down to pitching in these uh, seven-game series or five-game series what the Twins find themselves now. You never know what you're going to get with a guy that's never managed before. So tell us what a season has been like with Rocco Baldelli as the Twins manager. You know, I had an opportunity to be in spring training for the first two weeks with the pitchers and catchers and just listening to Rocco's theory on, hey, guys, you know, we don't have to stand out here for four or five hours and do our PFPs, and you know what you need to do. You're grown men, Okay. You want to make this ball club, you want to do the best you can, put the work in. And it doesn't mean you have to have to stand around for four hours. Get it in, get it out, enjoy it. Uh, you know, take every game, one game at a time. It's, it's the same baseball theory, but sometimes when there's always a new mouth that's leading, Rocco Baldelli has been that new mouth and he's done a good job. So it's been announced by the Astros that Justin Verlander is going to start game four on three days rest. How did you feel about that in your career? Uh, I, I think pitchers today should pitch every fourth day. I came up in 1970 with a four-man staff. I don't think the fifth starter came in until the late 70s. I love pitching every fourth day. So I, I think Justin will be fine. The guy's a workhorse. Uh, you know, you if he falters, then you what? You got Cole in game five? My goodness. That's a pretty good combo right there. And let's end on this. There's so much talk now about spin rate and all these different things. You had one of the greatest curveballs of all time. What was? What do you think Burt Blylevin's spin rate was back in the day? Well, it was probably pretty good if they missed it. If I hung it, it probably wasn't very good. So, uh, you know, we didn't have all that stuff. We didn't have the analytics. You kind of had to feel the hitter that was at the plate if he's leaning in 
Maybe you got to bust them on his butt a little bit. Not only, you know, my best conversation when I was 19 years old, I had a, I was with the uh, Minnesota Twins. We we're playing the Angels in Anaheim, and I got to sit down because of my Marv, my pitching coach was Marv Grissom. He knew Don Drysdale, and of course, I grew up in Southern California. I idolized Colfax and Drysdale, and to be able to sit down and listen to him talk about pitching for about 15, 20 minutes. Everything he said went in one ear, and most of it stayed. It didn't go out to the other end because he was such a great competitor in the way that he went about his business. And You know, these kids today, I don't know if they want to learn off the veterans. I don't know if they want to pick the brains like I did or, you know, having the opportunity to pitch with Jim Cott and Jim Perry and, you know, Louis Tiant, those type guys, Dave Boswell. Those were the guys, when I came up, you picked their brains. Stan Williams, Ron Paranofsky. I was very fortunate to have uh, uh, some some veteran players that kind of uh, took me in as a younger brother. Oh, Drysdale and Koufax. Can you imagine having to face them on back-to-back days? <laughs> hey, what a combo. Bert, thank you so much for the time. Good luck with your twins tonight. We're going to be rooting for you guys against the Yankees. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Let's uh, make it. Uh, let's let's get the Twins a win and see what happens in Game Four. Well, you follow up two Hall of Fame pitchers with a perennial All Star, and he was a star, a World Series champion in 1981, a ten-time All Star, a National League MVP in 1974, a two-time NLCS MVP, a four-time Gold Glove winner won the Roberto Clemente Award, and there are quite a few people who think he should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. For his era, nobody was better than Steve Garvey. And don't forget, played college football, which we will bring up as he played it at Michigan State. Steve Garvey right here on A's Unfiltered. Steve, Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks, Chris. And, of course, this is the uh, the holidays of uh... Of baseball here you know the, the the world's watching so to speak it's my favorite time of the year and uh, it's great to be with you does it get any better than having four games in one day no it doesn't really yeah. <laughs> and if they could find a way to maximize the revenue for tv that have six somehow you know? but at some point you got to start narrowing it down and, and it's getting pretty interesting there's been some uh some pretty good games uh look at tampa bay today you know uh, so it's uh with the Dodgers were one one coming out of LA, you know, before the the seven run inning last night, uh, it was starting to get uh, get a little nervous time for the Blue. But uh, still, there's time left in each one of the uh, the division games. You know, it is amazing the firepower of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and you got to see it on display. It's like Steve, they it was like they shell shocked the Washington Nationals yesterday in their own park. Uh, they did. You know, it was really a good game. Um, you know, and now you're nowadays you're just looking for matchups. You know, metrics will dictate this or that. And once Corbin came in, and I'm not so sure, you know, he didn't have that uh, that look on him that he does when he starts games. And he's been very, very effective against the Dodgers. Uh, a little bit hesitant, but you know, gets a couple outs and then gets O2, and he can't get this guy out. And O2, he can't get that guy out, and all of a sudden, you know, five hits after two outs later. Uh, you're looking at almost an insurmountable uh, lead. So the Dodgers, all of a sudden, they bring him. You know, Corbin comes in. They start going to the righties. You know, they bring Kreis in. You bring Hernandez in. Um, that's what a team that's got depth and, and multi-purpose like the Dodgers can do to you. You know, our, our friend Ray Fossey always laughs about how in one of the <laughs> World Series, they only the A's only used five pitchers in the entire World Series. Just talk about how different it is now compared to when you played, the fact that you're going to see a ton of relievers. No matter what, how great the starter is, you're going to see multiple relievers throughout the game. Well, Ray's talking about the Jurassic Park era that we played in, where uh, where he's right. You you used a handful of guys, and your starters, uh, their goal was to go complete games. Uh, But the culture has changed dramatically now. The economics now dictates that there are uh, specific skills for, for certain positions. And if you look at September, I always have to chuckle when you see 16, 17 pitchers used in, in a game in September. And, of course, 
you know, the expansion of the roster has something to do with it, and I think they're going to modify that. But uh, the, the game itself, the inner game, is, is the relief core and how you use it. Yeah, and you're going to see a ton of relievers throughout the game, there's no question. But when you think about the Dodgers, you know, just talk about how they've mastered, along with the Houston Astros, the ability to take other people's players and make them better. Mm-hmm. Well, they have. And, um, and of course, you know, it's also very interesting. Uh, when Guggenheim took over his, his ownership for a, for the uh, the pittance of 2.1 you know 2.15 billion that uh, they brought along that hedge funds mentality and they the Dodgers had gotten to a point in bankruptcy where they literally had no international office the minor leagues were I think uh, not in the top 25 at the time although they had a lot of talented uh, executives there and scouts they just didn't have the money so with the infusion of the capital from Guggenheim down at the top and literally you know all those categories and to be able this year to be 15, 16 games ahead going into August and to take a look at your talent in the minor leagues and bring up a Smith and a, and a Lux and a May and a, a Gosselin uh, gives them the, the latitude to give these kids experience. And you know, lo and behold, three of those four are on the uh, at least the NLDS roster. So, you know, the rich get rich sometimes and the poor get poor. And at the end of the day, though, it's, uh, it's still a game that doesn't have a clock. The time doesn't run out. You need 27 outs and one more run. And, and the team that ultimately wins really has that great season. And even though the Dodgers have had very good teams the last few years, they still haven't been able to close the World Series. So, you know, we used the theme, the hunt for Blue October, and uh, this may be the one. Yeah, you start mentioning those names. Like Lux in his very first at-bat in the postseason, he goes yard. You got Bueller starting game one. I mean, you got the veteran guys who are great. We know Kershaw, Rich Hill's going to be going today, but they just keep bringing up these young guys, Steve. It's unbelievable. Well, you know, again, it's all a tribute to the minor league system and the, and the uh, executives and, and scouts and the ability, the ability to draft and sign those people uh, and then to develop them. You know, it's all about player development. Ultimately, the teams that seem to be there at the end of September every year are the ones that have – the strongest minor league departments. And uh, you see that in the, in the Dodgers, Houston, say over the last six, seven years, uh, and what they've done with a lot of first round draft choices because of being so bad <laughs> with the prior seven or eight years. Um, but getting that opportunity for filling the Yankees, even this year with so many injuries, have been able to bring people up, mix and match, piece things together. Uh, and ultimately, it all depends on power. And uh, the way the ball has been slipstreaming, I call it, through uh, through the atmosphere uh, in this era of, of the long ball. Uh, ultimately, it depends on, on the, who wins the long ball game during the game. You know, I think about you and your career and all the hits that you had. What would have Steve Garvey been like in today's baseball when we're now talking about launch angle? Oh, that's funny. You know, people, people come up, uh, did you have a launch angle? And you say, launch angle how did I hit him out I, I said but my angle wasn't uh, in terms of how I could go from low to high it was more of how I could take a pitch uh, where where it was thrown and hit a line drive somewhere and if I got under it a little bit it'd be a, a home run but my job was to uh, to cover the plate you know I I get 10 or 12 bun hits a year or six six to eight hit and run hits uh, I knew when to drop my hands and hit a fly ball for a sacrifice fly. Uh, it was situational hitting with an approach towards, you know, hitting line drives. If you look back at the games, you know, say, for instance, a, a World Series game in the 70s, if you look at the players, all of them had a parallel stance and most of them had a close stance because you were taught that's the way you cover the plate. Now you see a significant number of open stances where hitters are an inside half hitter. And they, they wait for that pitch. Everybody's pretty stationary in the box. Nobody really moves around that, that I did and a lot of guys did, depending on situations. And uh, they're trying to get under the ball and hit it out. And that's what sabermetrics demands. You know, walks are fine. Singles are just okay. Uh, solo bases aren't in big demand. But the, the home run and the three home run, three and home run, are uh, are the epitome of this, this metric game, or like I, call it, I like to call it spreadsheet baseball. 
You know, I think about two organizations have won at least three World Series in a row. There's only two. It's the Yankees and the A's. And for our young A's fan base, you got to play against one of those teams in the 70s. Tell these young A's fans how good the 70s A's were. Well, they epitomized, uh, you know, baseball at that time, you know, and and really throughout the ages. Um, Good, solid defense, good starting pitching. Didn't need a lot of relieving, but they had a Raleigh Fingers. Uh, They had some power and they manufactured runs. They stole bases. Uh, Dick Williams turned out to be a Hall of Fame manager and who managed uh, myself, you know, and a pretty pretty good team in San Diego, uh, knew how to take a veteran team and, and how to use it. So it, it really was the way the game was played. And, of course, the Dodger organization was always known as the Dodger way to play the game. You know, we worked on bunting and hitting running. You know, first 10 days of spring training, we would spend the morning on, on cutups and relays and, and defensive plays. Uh, I don't think a team spends maybe one morning in spring training anymore on that. So, um, you know, like I always say, offense wins games, defense wins championships. And if you look from, you know, throughout October, defense ultimately will win, you know, the, the, the golden prize, and that'll be the world championship. You know, I, I actually still have this. It, it, it's three pictures in a row, and you signed it. The home run you hit off Lee Smith as a Padre. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It, it was really, really sure. cool. And when you're when you're raising your fist, rounding first, and I think it was Drysdale saying, and there will be a tomorrow. What was that mm-hmm. moment like for you in that playoffs against the Cubs? Well, there are certain moments that define your career. And, of course, when the Dodgers made me an offer I could refuse <laughs> after my contract ran out in 82, um, you know, I did a little tour of, the Giants, Cubs, Yankees, Houston, and San Diego. And uh, ultimately, Ray Kroc had me up to his his clifftop home. And, of course, we all know the great success of Ray Kroc and McDonald's. And he was about 83 at the time. And he got me up there and he looked at me. He said, Stevie, he said, uh, I really want you here, son. And I said, well, thank you, sir. You know, it was one of you wanted. He said, but I got one problem. And I said, gosh, what's that? He said, I can only pay in Big Macs and French fries. <laughs> and I said, well, can I have it for a lifetime? He looked at me and smiled. He said, yeah, you can have it for a lifetime. He said, I'll probably find a few bucks. And uh, he said, but, you know, I want you here. And I signed within the next day, and that began the run. You know, 83, uh, we come together with a young Gwynn and Mick Reynolds and, um, you know, Kennedy and those guys. And then Gossage and Nettles join us in 84, and we go all the way to the World Series for the first time. And of course, I hit that that walk off against Lee Smith, but uh, people will come up and they'll tell me where they were when I hit the home run. And I think that's always a measure of, of, uh, and how it affects people. And and I always say we're in the memory game and that memory is uh, indelible for many people, including myself. Yeah. And a lot of people forget at Michigan state. I mean, obviously you're a great baseball player. You're a first round draft pick, but you were also a DB on the football team back in the day. Yeah. I, yeah, I love football and I was a quarterback out of, Tampa Chamberlain and, and went there and Duffy Doherty got a hold of me and said, son, you know, we heard you're a pretty good football player and you want you to play that too. And I said, oh, good. You know, I'd love to. And uh, at the end of the first week of practice as a freshman, uh, there was a shortage of defensive backs. And the coach said, anybody play defense? I rose my hand. He said, play a little corner this afternoon. And I intercepted a pass and looked like I knew what I was doing. And that was, uh, that was it for offense. But, but I started for two years. And it was a great experience. And, uh, you know, I always thought that playing football, you know, was a big asset for my baseball career. It taught me a lot of things. And, and one thing was toughness and playing through pain. And, and ultimately that, uh, that helped when I was on, you know, the consecutive game streak that went seven and a half years and 1,207 games and, and the National League record. So um, I always look back at that time in Michigan State as being a great time. And scholastically and, and personally as a, is a key development in my life and a key to my future. And let's end on this. I think about the infield you were a part of, and continuity is such a big thing, especially in sports. And when you got Ron Say at third, and you got Lopes at second, you got Russell at short, and you at first base, all those years you guys played together, what was that like in the continuity that you guys had in that Dodger infield? You know, that's a great question. I uh, I talk about that frequently now because even though you have teams that are 
they're very, very good. The teams that seem to have the same seven guys every night, and you look at Houston two years ago, and you look at Boston last year, and you look at the Dodgers who they played and how the Dodgers would, you know, pit right against left and vice versa and move guys around. Ultimately, if you can get to that seven guys every day, you know, that can move together and have continuity, I think you're you're at an advantage. And that's why starting in the middle of 73 to 83, uh, that run where we went to four World Series, won a World Championship, came in second four other times, had the great competition with the Reds, you know, and then, of course, the Yankee Dodger World Series, which was the ultimate. You know, that continuity of having a core group of guys out there, I, I think, really makes a difference. And, you know, I, I said that. I did uh, Fox 11 Los Angeles pre and post last couple of years World Series. And uh, I ultimately said, if, if, if we're not going to win, it probably ultimately will be because of a defensive play here or there that not because of lack of talent, but because of lack of continuity playing together that might make the difference. So, uh, you know, hopefully not this year. Hopefully those kind of situations don't arise and, and you know, the, the key strikeout or the line drive double the opposite field will make a difference. So we'll see. Steve, thank you so much for the time. I truly appreciate it, and good luck to your Dodgers the rest Absolutely. of the way. Absolutely. God bless. Thank you. The Garve, and God wasn't he clutch. He was so good. Steve Garvey. And whenever we're talking Astros baseball, we're going to be talking it with our man Jeff Blum, the former Cal Bear, start at Cal. What a great career he had. World Series champion in 2005. A World Series hero with that big home run for the White Sox. And whenever we're talking about the Houston Astros, we hook up with our guy Blummer. World Series hero does a great job now with the Houston Astros. Blummer, how we doing? I personally am doing you guys, but uh, the, the company I work for is having a rough day. Yeah, I was a little bit shocked by that uh, as the score is now 10-3. to 3. But, you know, the one thing, the Rays, I mean, you rolled through them for the first two days, but you have to admit, especially at Tropicana, the Rays are a tough ball club. Yeah, they're a tough ball club. They figured out how to play in that place. It's it's not one of the more enjoyable habitats to go out and try and play a baseball game in. And uh, it's kind of interesting still hearing that they have a playoff game in that stadium and they're still unable to take the tarps off the entire upper deck of the stadium and fill it. That's, it's a little concerning for me if I was just the commissioner of baseball by itself. But uh, the Rays have done a very good job in competing with a subpar stadium, a subpar payroll, and they just do a great job of you know mixing some parts and putting things together to be able, be able to go out there and beat some uh, pretty good ball clubs. Yeah, I, I mean, they'll have their day today, but I think we all know the Astros probably will win this series. They're highly favored. Just in a, a day in and day out, what is it like when you're calling baseball where you're seeing Verlander one day, then it's Cole, then it's Grinky? What has that been like for you? It's been outstanding, and it's, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been a lot of pressure because the better these guys are, the you know, better we have to be too because more people are tuning in to listen. And uh, But it's been a lot of fun. The first you know three months of the year, you're like, oh, man, what are these guys going to do this year? And you get to that all-star break, and you're like, wow, they're having amazing years. Uh, you know, there's Cy Young's uh, attainable, and then you've got uh, Alex Bregman heating things up around the All-Star break, uh, Jordan Alvarez doing what he's doing. But when you have a Cole and Verlander going out and competing against each other on the same team and, and literally striking out 10 guys per game, it really puts an emphasis on us to try and figure out how these guys compare. And that's probably been the most fun for us is going back to some historical teams and even teams that I've faced in trying to figure out who Cole and Verlander kind of compare themselves to. And we keep looking at the, you know, Garrett Cole, uh, Pedro Martinez matchup as far as strikeout percentage over a year, and Cole won that. Uh, then you see uh, Verlander, I mean, not Verlander, uh, Schilling and Johnson, how many strikeouts they had combined. And, the, you know, they were the uh, strikeout duo until we saw Verlander and Cole. So it's been kind of fun in the historical sense to be able to see who these guys match up with because we, have, we did witness history. Yeah, I, I actually retweeted the other day. Somebody put out there about tunneling and to look at the three different pitches by Garrett Cole, how they all look the same, and then all of a sudden as it gets to home plate, they all start to break off where they go, and we're now able to see all this from these high-speed uh, high cameras. 
man, I mean, Cole's stuff is just, it's incredible. It is incredible. And that has been a lot of the fun that you do have the technology now that can break it down. And, you know, at, at normal human eye speed, it's really tough to break down what makes these guys so good other than the velocity and maybe some of the spin rate to explain why they're able to snap the slider or the curveball off and create that break. But now when they get in the playoffs, obviously the technology stepped up because budgets are a little bit different. So you get these incredibly slow motion uh, type cameras that are able to break down where that release point is and really see how far out of the hand after release point, how far out of the hand the fastball and slider look so similar out of the hand. And that's where it gets real tricky as a hitter trying to, you know, delineate which, which pitch is which, because the eye has to tell you the velocity and it has to tell you what the spin is. And then you also have to be creative enough to try and anticipate where that spin is taking that ball. And that's a lot to do within about a half second. You know, when I think of you, you mentioned Alvarez, it's just crazy to think that the Houston Astros got him and there was a mix-up in the trade with the Dodgers. What's the story on that? Uh, you know what? I've heard several different stories about that. I just, I, I think it's amazing in itself that we sit back and we say, Jordan Alvarez got traded for Josh Fields because nothing against Josh Fields, who was a serviceable uh, major league bullpen guy out of the Astros bullpen. It was a different story when he ended up with the Dodgers, who actually helped the, the Astros win their first World Series championship. But if you look at the comps and the potentials and futures or projections or whatever you want to call them, that was the most lopsided trade, almost like Jeff Bagwell and Larry Anderson, how that thing ended up. Because Jordan is such a unique, freakish talent at 22 years old, and he's still going to be maturing and, and in the system for six years. And if he continues a 25 to 75, 80 RBI type guy, he is a huge asset to have. But, you know, I, I heard that they had a list of names. They couldn't tick off the list. Then they said, oh, well, what about this young uh, Jordan Alvarez guy who's, who you literally just signed maybe a week ago you know, with some international signing bonus? And then I heard it was just you know, they recommended that they pay the money on the signing bonus for that guy. So there, there's, a, there's an interesting history behind it. I'm not sure which story is real, but it's definitely adding to the folklore of Jordan Alvarez. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, it's just like the rich just keep getting richer. And I, I and I think about Jose Altuve, and when the numbers came out that he's like neck and neck with Pete Rose in hits at this point mm -hmm. in his career, what a special player! I remember in Oakland, you you know how the steps go down from you know the Astros clubhouse and the st steps go down. I remember one time he walked out at the same time I was walking down. I'm five nine, and I'm like, wow, you can't believe how short he is. But this guy is a hitting machine. I think no question he is going to be a baseball Hall of Famer. Just talk about him as a player and just, you know, to be able to be, like, in the conversation with Pete Rose is amazing. Yeah, I, I am with you on that. And, again, we go to the historical context to try and comprehend how some of these Astros are playing in their careers. And Altuve is definitely one of those guys. It's amazing to see the comp between him and Pete Rose like you're talking about, just in the sense that you do get an appreciation for what Altuve and Pete Rose are doing. And then you try and calculate how, how, how many hits is he going to have to get and how long is he going to have to play to get to the Pete Rose status. And that's what's even more astonishing to me is, you know, it's another 15 years of 200-plus hits a year to even get within range of what Pete Rose is able to go out there and do. So he's got a long road ahead of him. I think his legs are really going to help him out. That's one of the things in the second half that's really made him the difference maker in the second half of the Houston Astros is the ability to beat out some infield hits and also get on the legs and drive baseballs out of the ballpark, setting a new career high with 31 home runs in the, in the season of 2019. And what's great about Jose Altuve is he's still continuing to get better. He, I don't know if we've really seen him plateau because, you know, a couple of injuries have hampered him a little bit, but I'd be real curious to see next year if he comes out and he is in a 200 hit, 30, you know, 20 to 30 home run type guy, which would really, you know, cement what you were talking about as a Hall of Fame career. You know, everybody keeps talking about Garrett Cole going back home to Southern California. Uh, his wife is, you know, is from Northern California and that, you know, he's going to be an angel. But I think about what you got there in Houston. And I think about the window of opportunity that's there in Houston. I don't know if you'd really want to leave that. How happy do you think Garrett Cole is there with the Astros? 
Well, I think we should hire you to put it on our PR staff to try to convince him to stay here because I think you're right in the sense that uh, he is very comfortable here. And I know that for a fact. He has meshed real well with uh, Justin Verlander. He's meshed real well. He's going to be here for two more years. He's meshed really well with uh, Brent Strom, the pitching coach. And, you know, we actually interviewed his mom on one of our last telecasts of the year um, over on AT&T. And she had mentioned, you know, with him in Pittsburgh, it was kind of miserable, didn't get to see him all that often. Now all of a sudden he's in Houston. The Astros are going through Anaheim three times a year. And she's, oh, Garrett's so happy. I'm so happy. We get to see each other. It's a great situation. So I really hope that those things kind of, you know, it's, it's going to be tough to discount a guy and convince him to come back to a place when you're going to see offers for Garrett Cole probably in the range of $35 million a year. That's what's going to be tough competition because you can, you can love a place to death, but I tell you what, if you give me $35 million, $35 million reasons to enjoy a city, I'll find a way. Yeah, but give me his number. I'll call him. I'll tell him about the state taxes of <laughs> the state taxes here in California is thirteen point three percent. You're going to make a lot more money just in taxes alone. How much money you make more being in Texas? Yeah, that would be actually a lot of fun. If I was better at math and studied a little bit harder at Cal on the uh, calculus <laughs> end of it, I could tell you. You know, does thirty million in Texas compare to a thirty-five million dollar contract in uh, California? Uh, it, it definitely is a big difference, especially when you're playing 81 <laughs> games here. No, but uh, Garrett Cole, I mean, you talk about uh, it's just such a special talent. What What is it about the Astros where they have become masters at taking other people's players and making them better? Oh, it, it, there's so many things involved. I mean, but just on the surface and, and a lot of the stuff that we know about because you know as well as I do, the Oakland A's and a lot of these organizations have proprietary information and they have specific scouts that work well within their systems of analytics. So they know how to go out and scout and look and find what they feel is going to be a very good fit or they're going to be able to enhance. And I think what a lot of, uh, a lot of Astro scouts and maybe some of the analytics say is go out and find me a guy with arm speed. Garrett Cole obviously had arm speed, which relate, relates to high velocity as far as the pitch coming across home plate. And then they go out and they try and measure the spin rates. If they have a guy who can actually crank up maybe you know, 10, 12 times a year, really crank up a high spin rate, I think they put a little asterisk next to the guy and say, okay, this is a guy that I think that we can work with. So they scout him a little bit longer and see if they can maintain some of that spin rate. And then they bring him over here to the Houston Astros and they kind of put him in their system, put him through the grinder of what the Astros feel is going to make them best. And if the guy catches on, you're going to see a lot of velocity and you're going to see a lot of spin because the Astros really believe that you've got to spin to win. And the more spin rate you've got, the sharper the break. And these guys go out and throw their off speed as hard as you possibly can. That's not something that's typically taught, but probably is going to be started, you know, probably is going to be talked about more is throw your off speed as hard as you can to create that spin for the swing and miss. But it's also the adjustment, you know, from that old school mentality of getting on the two-seamer and creating sync for the ground ball. Hitters in this modern era are starting to develop swings to get under the sinker and lift it and get it out. And I think that's why you've seen a little bit, besides the baseball, a little bit of a jump in the home runs. So the Astros understand that in order to swing up, you've got to start to swing down and come up through the zone. So the way they're competing with it is throwing the four-seam fastball, having that spin rate plane out and ride through the top part of the zone where you've got to be pretty darn perfect to get to a high fastball, and then you add the velocity to it, it makes it a little more tough. Let me take you back to 2008. Jeff Blum was 35 years old. He hit 14 <laughs> bombs. If you were playing today, you'd be like a 30-home run guy. Yeah, I wouldn't be sitting on 99 home runs. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> they would have taken. They they'd bring you back to Houston there at Minute Maid Park, and you'd be. A, can can you imagine you getting to be able to hit with the ball that we have today? Oh my gosh, yeah, I, I think about that all the time. You know what? I, I played through the steroid era. I had the opportunity, maybe, to think about doing it, but I did not do it. And you know, I still had a good career, but I, I always look back and go. Man, what if? What if I just did it enough to give me, you know, ten to, you know, fifteen to twenty home runs a year? And now I look at this era that's playing right now. And if that baseball had been back in that steroid era, could you imagine the numbers they would have put up? But yeah, I do feel that this baseball is helping these guys out a little bit throughout the course of the season. I think the biggest. And if anybody at home wants to really go out and do some studying, go look at the AAA numbers because AAA have their own base. You know, the uh, Pacific Coast League 
had their own baseball up to 2018. 2019, they adopted the Major League Baseball, and I think home runs jumped by about 1,000. Yeah, it was actually 2,000. Oh, man, are you kidding me? Yeah, it was like 2,000 like 2, more home oh. runs than the year before. Well, shoot, I grossly underestimated that. Well, hey, hey, the Las Vegas Aviators, our AAA team, I mean, there was one game mm-hmm. there was 11 home runs hit. Oh, my God. See, that's not, that's not natural. That, I mean, that, everybody, the, the theory that chicks dig the long ball, everybody loves the offense, that, that's a little too much for me. I want to see guys that know how to get base hits and then have those thumpers in the middle of your lineup that know how to go out there and drive guys in. But, man, that's incredible. Blummer, you're the best, and we'll catch up with you later in the playoffs, and good luck to your Astros. Always appreciate it. Great being on with you guys. I look forward to talking to you soon. We hope you enjoyed another edition of A's Unfiltered. The Hall of Famers, Tom Glavin and Burt Blylevin, the perennial all-star Steve Garvey, and our buddy Jeff Blum. Thank you for listening to A's Unfiltered. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.